1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made Proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Amen. Now, in this third chapter in our series on sin and judgment, we have at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 to 7, more on domestic exhortations, household exhortations. That is, within relationships, what it is and how it is that we should live and live according to righteousness instead of sin. That's in verses 1 to 7. The apostle last time in chapter 2, verses 13 to 20, did the same with the authorities in the government and also with slave and master relationship. He has done that in chapter 2, 13 to 20. Then he showed that the extreme suffering was actually done by Christ. That's in 221 to 25. He is the perfect example of suffering and extreme suffering and on our behalf. And if he is our model, if he is our example, then we should follow his example, follow in his steps. Having used Christ as the perfect example, he returns to the household exhortation. In chapter 3, 1 to 6, he addresses the wives, and in verse 7, the husbands. 1 to 6 is the wives, verse 7, the husbands. Then, in accordance with the theme, the emphasis on persecution, 1 Peter is especially focused on not afflictions generally, but persecutions as a specific type of affliction, a specific type of hardship. And he returns to that in reference to us all generally. In 1 to 7, it has to do with husbands and wives, but all of us generally from verses 8 to 22. From 8 to 22. And whenever we do experience these afflictions in persecution, we will have the tendency to fear, to fear man. And he tells them in the first part, he tells the wives, do not fear. And then he tells all of us in verses 8 and following, not to fear. And also, whenever we are persecuted, it may be the multitudes who are against us. It may be the majority of the people or most of the people who are against us. But he says not to worry because in the past, Noah experienced the same. Noah and his family experienced the same. Only eight persons were saved by the worldwide flood. Only eight. And so if we feel and we experience that we are in the minority the extreme minority, we shouldn't fret, we shouldn't worry, we shouldn't be anxious, we should not fear, we should not be confused and bewildered that we are the only ones that we know who believe. There are very few true believers. That should not alarm us. Instead, we should learn from the biblical examples. And one of the best is eight in the days of Noah. Only eight. Throughout the whole world, only eight. This is not the typical way, the typical perspective of the Christian life presented these days. These days, it is the complete opposite. 
These days, wives are encouraged to subvert their husbands. These days, husbands are not mindful of their wives. These days, many people are seeking to intimidate Christians. They do it worldwide. They even do it in so-called Christian countries. A Christian who speaks up and says, no, no, that is a sin, he's immediately persecuted and denounced by the other so-called Christians. And even lawsuits are presented against him for saying so. It's not very different. It is the same today that we are also persecuted. If we stand up for righteousness, if we preach the truth, we will be persecuted. If we do not preach the truth, what will happen? Everybody will like us. We'll have crowds and crowds of people. We'll have lots of notoriety. We will be a celebrity. Everyone will know our name. This is the way of the world. And this is also the way of the Christian world, typically, in order to draw the crowds. But that's not the way of the Scripture. The way of the Scripture is to anticipate persecutions. In Acts 14.22, there were persecutions. In Acts 14.22, the apostles Well, the apostle said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. As well, 2 Timothy 3, 12. 2 Timothy 3, 12 says, And indeed, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is certain, absolute, definite. It will happen. Persecution will come. Keeping these thoughts in mind, let's go to chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This is an exhortation for the wives. He says in verse 1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. In the same way. In the same way as whom? Well, he just showed us the example of Christ, 21 to 25, 221 to 25, the example of Christ. And if he also intends to mean the example of the citizen, chapter 2, 13 to 17, or of slaves, 2, 18 to 20, if he intended to mean all of them, well, we have all these examples. And therefore, should, should the wife think that her plight is not understood by God, that God has not prescribed a way for her to behave or to act in her marriage? No. She shouldn't think that. Previously, we have Christ. Previous to that, we have slaves. Previous to that, we have citizens who are to submit to their governments. This is the way. So the wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands. To your own husbands, be submissive. Because of feminism, feminism says, if they believe in any submission, they'll say submission does not mean obedience. 
Submission is not to be equated with obedience. It is a, a kind of respect or a superficial respect. Well, actually, look at verse 6. He uses a synonym. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham. Obeyed. She obeyed Abraham. Submission, to be in subjection, is the same as obedience. These are synonyms. Different ways to describe the same humble approach that the wife should have toward her husband. Otherwise, it's a sin. And he says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Why? Why be submissive? And he says, why keep quiet? He's saying, maybe one without a word. Not by nagging, not by contention, not by daily strife, grumbling, griping, quarreling with a sour attitude. That should not be what the wives do. They must repent of that and win their husbands without a word. Without a word. Without a word, does it mean anything else but without a word? Then why is it that wives typically ignore this? And they jabber, they blabber, they quarrel, they fight, they're feisty. Why is it? They should not be. That's a sin. He says, this is the approach even to those who are disobedient to the word. To those who are disobedient to the word. The excuse cannot be made by the wife. Well, my husband's disobeying. So I can do what I want. I need to, I need to tell him. I need to teach him. I need to repeat it. That's a sin. It's a sin because it says, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, even if they, the husbands, are disobedient, this is the same approach. The wife typically will say, and again, this is because of the culture, the world, feminism, well, if he would just be nice to me. It says, even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Wasn't it the unreasonable master in 2.18? Yes. The unreasonable master in 2.18, and yet the servants or slaves are still told to submit. The, the o- obedience or the godliness of the husband is not a factor as to whether the wife submits to him or obeys him. Of course, he doesn't mean in sinning. If husband says, wife, let's go out and get drunk tonight. No. Wife, let's go buy some drugs, illicit drugs, and take them. Wife, let's go to an orgy. No. Wife, let's go to the casino. No. He's not talking about sin like that. He's talking about daily behavior. He's not talking about if the husband is enticing his wife to sin. That's not what he means. He's talking about other scenarios. And if that approach is taken, the apostle says, 
they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Without a word by the behavior. It's not what we say, it's what we do. Let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and truth. It depends on how we live, how we actually behave, not what we say. Many people speak and they speak profusely. They are jabber boxes, many people. But what they do really matters. And even with the wife, what she actually does. And what should the husband see in the wife? Verse 2. What should the husband see? As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The behavior is both chaste, chastity, to be chaste or chastity has to do with modesty and, and humility, not flaunting one's beauty, the wife's beauty, flaunting it. Hey, look at me. Look at my hair today. Look at my clothes today. Look at my jewelry today. Look at my skin today. Especially when they're displaying it publicly for men to be attracted to them. No, no. That's not the way. That's immodest. That's unchaste behavior. This is the general tendency of women. They want the the eyes of many people, men and women, but that shouldn't be the case. Further, he says, respectful behavior. Respectful. Just as children, they should be respectful to father and mother. Just as the citizen should be respectful to governmental officials, if we were to meet him or address him, wouldn't we say sir and mister or your honor, honorable senator, whatever the context requires, wouldn't we do that? Well, then the wife also, she should have respectful behavior toward her husband, not irritable, griping, nasty behavior. It is not good, even though feminism says, I am a nasty woman, and they're proud of it. Feminism says that. No, not the woman who claims to be a Christian, the wife who claims to be a Christian, not at all. It should be respectful behavior. Yes, please, thank you. Kind request, gentle speak, uh, speech. This is the way it should be. Then verse 3, returning to the chaste behavior, and then he's going to speak of the respectful behavior. The chaste behavior, verses 3 to 5. He says, And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. The adornment of the wife is not to be occupied or preoccupied with external beauty. He's not saying wives should be unconcerned about their external beauty, but he's saying it is not to be your focus, it is not to be the way that you draw attention from people, 
This is not the focus that you should have. That shouldn't be your concern. He doesn't say you should neglect it. He's talking about the sinful obsession with external beauty and women who do so have disregard for their inner beauty. When they are obsessed, addicted to their external beauty, what happens? By its very nature, they are going to completely ignore, completely eradicate the thought that their inner beauty is most important. Verse 4, he says, But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The hidden person of the heart, imperishable quality. Why? Because these have eternal consequences. The internal hidden qualities of the woman have eternal consequences. He says imperishable, not perishable. Clothes, dresses, hair, they all perish. But the hidden person doesn't perish in the believer. It lasts and has eternal consequences. And he calls he says he calls for gentle and quiet spirit gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of god the precious value the real gold is not the gold on the fingers or the ears the real gold that is valuable or precious in the sight of god is gentleness and quietness, gentleness and quietness. These are the opposite and the positive qualities contrary to the words of nagging and contention in verse 1. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. Five, you're not alone. Christian wives, you are not alone. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. In former times, the holy women did. The holy women in former times. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Abigail, Hannah, these are just a few of the holy women in former times, in the Old Testament, former times. They did so. And even in the New Testament, we have holy women. We have Timothy's mother and grandmother, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, his mother and grandmother. We also have Lydia, Acts chapter 16, Lydia, verses 13 to 16 in Act 13 to 15 in Acts chapter 16. Lydia, there are also New Testament examples of holy women. You're not alone in this pursuit of godliness. Therefore, don't be anxious and don't complain and say, well, I'm the only one. God doesn't understand. God isn't helping me. 
My life is miserable. Woe is me. And other sob story comments. No, the holy women of the past lived this way. They hoped in God. They didn't hope in this present world. They didn't hope in their circumstances. They didn't hope for the best and best husband that the world could have. By the way, they're not the best wife that the world could have, but they think so. That is the ungrateful attitude of the wife. Give me, give me, give me. I deserve this. I want that. Why don't you do this for me? Why is, it, why is our circumstance not better than what we have right now? This kind of attitude is not hoping in God. It's going to cause the wife to complain, to murmur, grumble, and be contentious with her husband. But Peter says, do it without a word, with a gentle and quiet spirit. Clothe yourself, adorn yourself this way. The others did. If you claim the faith in Christ, you should also. He says, being submissive to their own husbands. That is where your first test is. That is where your first trial is. That is where your first victory should be. Being submissive to one's own husband. Because if there is no godliness with one's own husband, your closest neighbor, Ephesians 5, 28 to 29, says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Ephesians 5, 28 to 29. He who loves his wife loves himself. In that passage, it's a warning and exhortation to the husband. In our passage, where is the wife going to first display that she loves God and loves her neighbor as herself, the second greatest commandment? With her husband. That's where it is for the husband. That's where it is also for the wife. And from there, it goes to the children and others. Verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, a specific, particular, special example that no one can deny. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Yes, she actually did call him Lord. Lord with the lowercase l, lowercase l, which is a synonym of the word master. And if we trace the genealogy of the word husband, it also has that implication, the master of the house, the husband. The godly Sarah obeyed Abraham, and one indication is one simple word, how she addressed him. How she addressed him. The way the wife addresses her husband shows what's in her heart, whether it is a heart of submission, obedience, respect. This is the explanation on respect. Remember in verse 2, chaste and respectful behavior. Verses 3 to 5, chaste behavior. And now, verse 6, 
respectful behavior. What do wives call their husbands? It should be as Sarah called Abraham. Then if we claim to be in the line of faith, of course, Abraham is a model for all, but then Sarah is a model particularly for women because it says there, you have become her children if you do what is right. You can be categorized in the line of faith of the godly women of old, a child or daughter of Sarah, if you behave like this. By the way, some interpreters will take Sarah in the book of Genesis, and this is a false interpretation, but they will take her here or there as being subversive and disobedient and unrighteous and taking a stand for her rights? Yes, they do. But of course, they are distorting the scriptures to their own destruction. The Apostle Peter says it in the opposite way, that Sarah is the very opposite of the common skeptical feminist, liberal interpretation of Sarah. No, they are false. Peter is true. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Moreover, verse 6 says, without being frightened by any fear. We can't say, or the wives cannot say, well, I'm afraid. Well, I'm afraid this is going to happen. Well, I'm afraid he's going to do that. Well, I'm afraid. I fear. Can't say that. He says, without being frightened by any fear. Don't be afraid. I'm afraid it's going to go to his head. It's going to go to his head. I can't be like that. It's going to go to his head. Peter says the opposite. He said, don't be afraid that it's going to go to the head of your husband. He needs to be put in his place. No, he doesn't. That's what Peter says, without a word. That they may be one without a word. It's not going to go to his head the way they think. Win him without a word. Don't be afraid of anything. Verse 7, the husbands. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You husbands, likewise. Husbands, likewise, have an obligation. Their obligations is to live in an understanding way with their wives. The husbands should live in an understanding way. What does he mean, live in an understanding way? He says, as with a weaker vessel. As with a weaker vessel. 
If she is a weak vessel, physically, then help her. But if she is also a weak vessel spiritually, help her. He's not saying ditch her, avoid her, exploit her. He says weaker vessel. And most likely, primarily, if not exclusively, he means in the spiritual way because the Bible is about spiritual things. And if he means it as she being weaker spiritually, since she is a woman, who was the first weak woman without any sin in her life? Eve. And she was deceived in Genesis 3 by Satan. She has, the woman has, an innate spiritual weakness. Even Eve, without any sin in her life, on the sixth day of creation, succumbed to the temptations of Satan in the Garden of Eden. What about now when they do have sin in their life? All of us, men and women alike, have inherited this original sin from Adam. We all have it. Therefore, all the more today are the wives weak, spiritually, weaker vessel. Before sin entered, she was weak. After sin entered, she's weaker. Weaker than the man. Why? Since she is a woman. Women are characterized in the Bible, properly described in the Bible, as being weak. This is not a justification to slam God, to slam the apostles of God, to criticize them, to ignore them. It is the truth. In fact, Eve believed it was the truth. In Genesis 3.13, Eve said to the Lord, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Eve said it. If wives have a complaint against God, they should first have a complaint against Eve. Eve said so. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Moreover, if they complain against Eve, they're really pompous. They're really arrogant. The women who complain, well, if I was in Eve's position, I wouldn't have done that. Please. All of us men would have done the same as Adam in the garden. And all of the women, the wives, would have done the same thing as Eve in the garden of Eden. That is the stance of humility. Therefore then, since she is in the faith, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life, so the way that she is treated should be with this in view. When this is not in view as a fellow heir of the grace of life, then husbands would sin against their wives. And if husbands sin against their wives, what's the danger? God will not answer prayers. It says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If we live righteously with our wives, our prayers 
will not be hindered. But if we live unrighteously with our wives, our prayers are hindered. Hindrance in prayers, what does he mean? He means that God does not hear sinners. John 9.31 He means you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with evil motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. When we don't have answers to prayer, it is, he says, because we have evil motives, we want to spend it on our pleasures. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God will not listen to the prayers of the husband when he's sinning against his wife. Therefore, repent, husbands and wives. Verse 8, to sum up, he has a summary in verses 8 and 9. Of course, the Bible will summarize and the Bible will expand. Both have their useful place. Here we have a a summary. Let all be harmonious. Everyone. Everyone in families. Everyone in churches. All be harmonious. Harmony. Sympathetic. Harmony is the opposite of disharmony. Contention and strife with one another. Sympathy. Be sympathetic. When there is a need, don't be callous, but be sympathetic. Be sensitive and help the other in need. Be brotherly. In a healthy family relationship, brothers are kind and gentle with one another. Siblings, brothers, sisters are kind toward one another. That's why he says, be brotherly. As it ought to be in the natural family, it ought to be in the spiritual family. Kind-hearted. Kind-hearted. And humble in spirit. Notice these last two have more of a focus on what's inside of us. Kind-hearted. Not a mean spirit, a mean heart, but a kind heart toward one another. Humility in spirit, not arrogance in our spirit. We should not be arrogant within or proud within as we approach others, as we view others. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil. Someone may wrong us, they might do evil to us, but it doesn't mean we should do evil to them. They may insult us, verse 9, insult for insult, but it doesn't mean we should insult them in return. But giving a blessing instead. A blessing instead of an insult. Blessing instead of evil. Why? For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. If we are bent on 
trying to conciliate, if we are bent on peace, being peacemakers, if we have that bent, that desire, then we shall inherit a blessing. This was the very purpose for which we were called. To have a different approach. Not the mean, cruel, nasty approach of the world, which we used to practice. If someone did us wrong, well, I'm going to do him wrong. I'm going to find a way to retaliate. That's not the attitude of the Christian. Verses 10 to 12 quote Psalm 34, 12 to 16. Verses 10 to 12 quote Psalm 34, 12 to 16 where we were already told many, many, many pages before and centuries before, millennia before, in the Old Testament. How are we going to see good days and have a long life? He says, Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit or guile. Be honest and truthful people. If we practice honesty and truthfulness, then God will bless us with good days and a long life. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Turn away from evil. Repent of evil. Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace. This is where we ought to pursue peace with one another. Pursue peace with all. Where we ought to be called peacemakers. Because we are seeking for peace with one another. Not that it's guaranteed because our opponents may despise us still, but it's still our obligation to, at least first, to seek for peace, to pursue peace with all men, and especially in the household of faith. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do do evil. God is mindful of the righteous, And he is attentive to the righteous. Verse 7 was applied specifically to husbands, but in verse 12 it applies to all of us. If God is going to attend to our prayers, if he's going to listen to our prayers, then we must be righteous, practice righteousness. Because his face, his angry face, is against those who do evil. Be zealously pursuing good righteousness and zealously opposed to evil. Yes, zealously. Verses 13 to 17. 13 to 17. And who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? 
And by this, he's talking about ultimately our soul. He does not mean physically, because they might slap us across the face. They might beat us with a rod. They might use another kind of weapon to do damage and injury to our bodies. They might arrest us and throw us into prison. They might put us to death. But what he means is to look at the persecution from an eternal perspective. This is similar to Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Men can only kill our bodies, but God can kill body and soul in hell. Fear him. That's why he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So be zealous for good. 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. If we do, if we should suffer for the sake of righteousness, why are we bothered? Why are we worried? Is our conscience not clean and clear and good without guilt? We know we did the right thing. We know we said the right thing. So why are we fearful? We are blessed. So do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Don't be anxious about it. Don't fear them. Rather, fear God. Verse 14 is a quote from Isaiah 8, 12. Isaiah 8, 12. And then verse 15 alludes to Isaiah 8, 13. Isaiah 8, verse 13. Verse 15 alludes to it. How so? But sanctify Christ as Lord. It says in Isaiah 8.13 that it is the Lord that you should regard as holy. It is the Lord who you should regard as holy. If we regard the Lord as holy, same thing here, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Regard Him as holy and Lord in our hearts. If we do that, then he is the one who can remove the troubled spirit. He is the one that can help us when we are anxious about what people say, what people do to us. If we do not sanctify Christ as Lord in the heart, then we're going to succumb. We're going to compromise. We're going to buckle. We're going to say, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we, we can't. We can't claim that we we know what we're talking about. You're right some, we're right some. So let's just hold hands and figure it out. Let's just forget it. Forget the past and move on. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Why? Always being ready to make a defense. Not an excuse, but a defense. Defend righteousness. Defend the truth. Defend the true gospel. Make a defense. 
This word defense is from the original language, the word that comes into English for the word apology. And typically in daily English, we use the verb to apologize and the noun apology to refer to asking for forgiveness. However, in the theological sense, as some theologians, pastors, preachers are known to do, they are known as apologists. Now, apologist, <clears throat> the, the practice of the theological apology is defending the faith. It comes from this verse, 1 Peter 3.15, from the original Greek word for the word for defense. So they, presumably, the apologists, are defending the Christian faith in the face of opposition. They are making a defense, defending the Christian faith in the face of opposition. That is ostensibly, presumably, what they are doing. That's what they claim to be doing. Just a, an open secret for you all. They claim to be doing it, but most of the time they concede and compromise. They wrangle and give up so much ground on the gospel. That's what they really do. Most of them. Most of these so-called apologists. They are apologizing for what's in the Bible when they should be defending what's in the Bible. Nevertheless, for us, what should we do? Make a defense. Always being ready to make a defense. If we say, well, I'm not always ready. Well, then be ready. Be trained and be ready. Be trained so that you are ready. Always being ready to make a defense. To whom? To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. To everyone. Whenever anybody asks, whenever anybody presents a contradiction, whenever anybody is opposing our preaching and practice of righteousness, answer him. Answer him to everyone. We cannot make the excuse, this is typically the excuse, not that we don't have a proper occasion and time to do things, but usually people say, well, th this is not the right time. Well, the Holy Spirit hasn't led me yet. That's often said to avoid making an offense all the time. We can't do that. He says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone. We must be ready. Then our attitude, our approach to them with gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect or even literally gentleness and fear. This is the approach we should have with them. Not haughtiness, not pride, not wrangling, not shouting and screaming, not like that, but with gentleness and reverence. Yes, some apologists or preachers, evangelists, they don't practice gentleness and reverence. They ought to. Verse 16, 
and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Keep a good conscience. The good conscience is that which we have because we practice righteousness. They will slander us and call our good evil. Whatever we're practicing that is good, they will call evil. But in our conscience, we know it's good. We know it's good because it's in harmony with the Scriptures. They will slander us. They will revile our good behavior in Christ. But they will be put to shame. Right now, they are loud. They are obnoxious. They are clamorous against us. But one day, God will put them to shame. He's going to vindicate us and take out vengeance on them. They will be put to shame. That's the eternal perspective we should have. Not whether right now they're going to call us names, they're going to walk away from us, they won't be our friends anymore, they won't come to church anymore. These should not be our concerns. 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It's better to do what's right than what's wrong according to God's will. Yes, do what's right, not what's wrong. In chapter 4, 4, 15, 1 Peter 4, 15, he mentions a few of the wrongs. Some of the common wrongs. He says, By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. This is not an exhaustive list. Because no one should be known as an idolater. No one should be known as dishonoring his parents. Nobody should be known as uh, breaking the, the Lord's Day or the Sabbath commandment. Nobody should be known as a coveter or an adulterer. Though he doesn't mention many sins, he mentions a few. He says, that's not what we should be doing. None of those sins should be practiced. Do what's right. 18. 18 to 22. 18 to 22 is this transition to explain that we are indeed in the minority, but we're not the only ones in the minority. Verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Christ also died for sins once for all. One death for all of our sins. The just for the unjust. Notice there that phrase. It does not say for the just and the unjust. Arminians, in verse 18, they take it to mean free will believers. Not that they're true believers, but they believe in free will. Free will believers who believe in free will. Arminians, Pelagians, they think, verse 18 reads... For the just and the unjust. It doesn't read that way. 
both in English and in Greek. It doesn't read that way. It says, the just, singular in Greek. Who's the just? Christ. For the unjust, plural in Greek, who are the unjust? The elect. The elect. The singular just for the plural unjust. The unjust plural refers to the elect. Because the elect are those who are brought to God by the death of Christ. They are the ones brought to God. Not everybody, but the elect are brought to him. Though in English are adjectives when used as nouns, just and unjust, do not specify singularity or plurality. The original languages do. And in this case, Greek says singular just, plural unjust. This is important to rid ourselves of the disease, the fatal disease of Arminianism. He successfully brings us to God, Christ by his death. Not potentially, not possibly, if man just just exercises his free will, but definitely. Further, verse 18 continues to describe Christ and what Christ did. In verses 18 and 19, it says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, says the New American Standard Bible. Verse 18, in the Spirit, conveys, according to the NASB, in the Spirit of Jesus' human nature. That's the reason why NASB has a lowercase s for spirit. Because they are taking it to mean the human spirit of Jesus. His body was put to death, but his human spirit was made alive and he used that spirit to go to the prison to see or to visit, make proclamation to the spirits in prison. Verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. However, if we consult old commentators and old translations commentators, they take rightfully better that it should be rendered by the spirit, the preposition in, in the Greek language, may be rendered with the English preposition by, by. That's justified in this context. Also, the spirit in Greek, the word for spirit in Greek, is not capitalized as English does. We have lowercase and uppercase letters. But in the Greek language, they don't distinguish in the texts of the scripture, they don't distinguish between uppercase and lowercase. The ancient Greeks did not do so. Later in the medieval period they did, but not in ancient times in the period of the New Testament. They did not make a distinction between uppercase letters and lowercase letters. So then, 
it leaves the door open that the word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, which is likely the case. Again, even as old commentators take it. It would be better rendered for, for us if it said, but made alive by the Spirit, meaning but made alive by the Holy Spirit. And verse 19 in whom or with whom also he went. And the he clearly refers to Christ. Verse 19. Even the NASB capitalizes the H of he to refer to Christ. With whom also he went with the Spirit, with the power of the Spirit, as he was endowed immeasurably with the Spirit throughout his ministry and now also in his resurrection. Uh, death and resurrection. So by the Holy Spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Carefully note, made proclamation is not the Greek verb for preach the gospel. There is a Greek verb, which is not here in verse 19, for preach the gospel. This Greek verb is made proclamation or to make an announcement. Therefore, we know since it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27 and Luke 16, 19 to 31, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man wanted to be able to go from one place to the next place, from the place of punishment to the place of blessing, Abraham's bosom, Luke 16, 19 to 31. But Abraham said it's impossible for that to happen. So there can be no transference of the soul or the spirit in the afterlife. Hebrews 9, 27 and Luke 16, 19 to 31 repudiate and refute that notion. It's impossible. So then, he made proclamation. What would his proclamation be? It would be a proclamation of victory. And that verb is used in Greek to mean to make a proclamation as though it's a proclamation of victory. Yes. By the Spirit, after dying on the cross for our sins. To the spirits now in prison. Question, who are the spirits? Are these the spirits of dead men in the past? Or are these the spirits of demons? We will take it to be the spirits of demons, fallen angels, evil spirits, not good spirits, not good angels, and not disobedient, unbelieving men, nor good men. We cannot say good because of the next verse, verse 20. It says, who once were disobedient. No, it refers to the spirits of demons or the spirits of fallen angels. Then 19 also says, in prison. What is this prison? It is most likely the case that this prison is hell, the way that Peter refers to this. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. In 2 Peter 
2.5, he refers to these angels as being in hell. Moreover, in Jude, in the book of Jude, and this may be the most instructive to help us understand what, who is being mentioned here by the term spirits. Jude, verses 6 and 7. Jude 6. And this would be the spirits or fallen angels in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, in the days of Noah. He's about to mention Noah in Peter. Well, look here in Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Verse 6 mentions angels. Indisputably, he says, angels did not keep their own domain. They are kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Then he compares the angels' illicit pursuit of sex, verse 6, and compares those angels to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, who also pursued indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and are also undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Because he says, they in the same way as these. They as in the same way as these. He's comparing the angels to the Sodomites in verse 7. 6 and 7 go together in that they indulged in gross immorality. In Genesis 6, 1-4, sons of God married the daughters of men. The sons of God in Genesis 6 are angels who married women, human women. Job 38, 7 calls angels the sons of God. Job 38, verse 7. So then, if that's how we take it, look at verse 20 who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. They were disobedient prior to the flood, and the flood came after 120 years. God waited 120 years, and Noah was a preacher of righteousness, preaching righteousness, constructing the ark, spending a long time doing it, and then the flood came. Meantime, the world indulged in sin, and they persisted in sin. And yet God was patient toward the reprobate. The reprobate cannot say, God, you're impatient. No, he was patient with them. Yet, judgment did come. And when judgment came, 
Who survived? Eight persons. Eight. Only eight. Eight persons, husbands and wives. Four husbands, four wives. Only eight survived, were brought safely through the water. This is obviously a picture of salvation. The reprobate were disobedient, but the righteous, only eight, they were, they were spared from the flood. Now, if we were to calculate in terms of percentage, for us to understand the importance of this illustration, let us do the following. In the days of Noah, between creation and the flood, there was a span of 1,656 years. 1,656 years. Plenty of time for the earth to be populated. Plenty of time for the earth to be populated. If we say in that 1,656 years that there were 8 million people, only 8 were spared out of 8 million. That's a very, 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 very conservative number. 8 million. Because we're talking about 1,600 years. 8 million. How many people were spared compared to the rest? That would be one out of one million. Only one out of one million. Then, if we were to say that not 8 million, but 80 million, if there were 80 million in the world and only 8 saved, then that would be one out of every 10 million people. Only one out of 10 million people. What if we were to say that there were 800 million people and only eight saved? 800 million. That would then mean only one out of 100 million people were saved. One out of 100 million. But what is likely the case is that there were billions of people in the world. Billions. Billions. And scholars have estimated it in the billions. Even in the tens of billions. But let's just restrict ourselves to 8 billion for the sake of using the number 8 for simplicity. 8 billion in the world in the days of Noah. And only 8 spared. Only 8 saved. That would mean only 1 out of 1 billion. 1 out of 1 billion persons. That should arouse the fear of God in us. On the one hand, are we right with God or not? But number two, we should be grateful, 
We should be grateful that God has opened our eyes because we didn't do it ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were living wickedly before. We should be grateful that the Lord, by His grace, opened our eyes. And then thirdly, we should be mindful and take encouragement, not disillusionment, not discouragement. Well, why don't people see? Why don't people see what I see? It's plain in the Bible. It's very clear in the Bible. Why don't they see it? Well, this is the way of God throughout history. The way of God throughout history. Did he not say in the days of Ezekiel? He said in the days of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22.30, Ezekiel 22.30, And I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. But I found no one. Of course, God is using hyperbole in, because Ezekiel is one. Jeremiah was his contemporary. He's another. Daniel was his contemporary. He's another. He's speaking in hyperbole to say, the elect are very, very few, Ezekiel, in your day. Very few. The same in our day. Then 21 to 22, back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Corresponding to that. Just as the eight were saved in the ark through the destruction of the water, so we are saved in the ark of Christ. We are saved in the ark of Christ. Christ is our ark, the symbolism. He says, corresponding to that, there is a comparison or typology, an analogy between the ark and Christ. They were saved in the ark from all of the destruction all around them. In the same way, we are saved in Christ, who is our ark, though there is destruction everywhere around us. He doesn't mean water. Look at 21. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, contrary to infantile sprinklers, denominations that sprinkle infants and say, grace is conferred to them, regeneration is conferred to them, original sin is removed from them, so on and so forth. That's what they say when infants are sprinkled. And also contrary to the church of Christ, so-called. The church of Christ, so-called, denomination, though they claim not to be a denomination, they, that denomination says that the moment the adult is immersed, he's saved. He is not saved without the water. The water saves him, and they falsely distort 1 Peter 3.21. They will say repeatedly, baptism now saves you. Baptism now saves you. Is that what he means here? No, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean water baptism saves you because he just says not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Not the physical water. We're not talking about physical water. We're talking about spiritual water. And 
He says, corresponding to that, verse 21. Was Noah, in verse 20, was Noah saved the moment the first raindrops sprinkled on the earth? Or was Noah saved when the whole earth was submerged in water, immersed in water? Was Noah saved by the sprinkling of the first raindrops? Or was Noah saved by the immersion of the ark in the world, in the flood? Neither. He was saved for many years before that. He was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. He was a prophet. He was saved many years before that. Just as we are converted, first, the spiritual conversion or the spiritual baptism happens within us, and then we are physically immersed to symbolize what we just did or what just happened to us. Further, in verse 21, he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's the internal work of God. When we appeal to God for a good conscience, that's when we believe and we call out to God in repentance and ask for his forgiveness of sins. We're appealing to God for a good conscience. We have an evil conscience because of sin. We want a good conscience, a forgiven conscience, by calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Forgiveness of sins. This is possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was delivered up because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ is the power that is applicable to us. We die to sin and live and rise to righteousness. And this is possible also because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Remember Jesus said that, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Here too, who is at the right hand of God. He's not in the grave, contrary to the skeptics. He's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. That's the ascension. After angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Our Faith is in this Christ who rose from the dead, who's at the right hand of God, who's in heaven, and all angels, unseen forces, are submitted to him, are subject to him, obey him. So why are we afraid of anyone? We shouldn't be afraid. Don't be afraid that we are in the minority and do not be afraid when they revile us. Instead, trust in the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.